Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We have been studying this book for many months and uh, we'll be studying it for a few more years as well. And we made it to the end of Romans 10. And what we're doing is just studying God's word as God said it. Uh, the reason that we do what we call Lectio Continua or, or next verse preaching, just go from one verse to the next, is because that's the way God wrote it. That's what God, the way God said it. And the most pure way to understand what God said is to look at it in the context in the way that he did indeed reveal it. This is a letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to a group of believers in Rome. You'll remember he was radically saved as a persecutor of Christians on a road going toward Damascus and just outside the city wall. A bright light came. It was the Lord Jesus. He arrested his attention and reshaped his entire life to be a missionary and a pastor and a preacher for Jesus. The one who he had been persecuted, he was now not only loving and worshiping, he was proclaiming. Well, that set him on a, an unlikely kind of mission, not only preaching and traveling from city to city, but he began to write letters. We have many of those letters in the New Testament. One of those letters is this book we call Romans. It was a letter written from Paul to a group of believers who were there in Italy, in Rome. He hadn't been there. He longed to go there. He wanted to go there on his way to eventually go to Spain to proclaim the gospel. And he, he had heard of their faith. He knew of them. He knew of this church. He loved the city. The opportunity for gospel impact in the, the metropolitan city of Rome was attracted to him. He also said, I want to come and share my spiritual gift with you so that you can be blessed. Now, before you get uh, too hard on Paul and say, well, that was kind of arrogant, he said, and I also want to be blessed and ministered to by your spiritual giftedness. We'll get to that in chapter 12. This is a unique letter. This is a letter that some Puritans used to say, if all you had was the book of Romans, you would have enough of the gospel to be saved. It is a dense, concise consolidation of what the gospel is. It's a hinge between the Old Testament and the New Covenant and the New Testament. It's a book that has been the favorite of almost every reformer or theologian over the course of church history. After every chapter, we've kind of stopped and looked back, kind of a bird's eye view to see what, what the whole chapter looks like in one fell swoop. We're going to do that today. And in doing so, it really shows theology and it shows practicality. There are some who would tell us that, well, parts of the Bible are doctrine and parts are practical. You know, can I just say that all doctrine is practical and any practice that you have that's not doctrinal is not truly pleasing to the Lord? This has incredible implications and applications for our life. So we're going to look at the whole chapter in one section together. In August of 2010, I don't know if you remember this, you certainly will when I begin describing it to you, the world began to watch an incredible story unfold over the next 69 days. There was a gold mine in Chile, and there was a, uh, an earthquake, or they're not sure if it's an earthquake or a shifting in the mine. There's still some debate on that that happened. And anyway, it trapped 33 miners a half a mile below the surface of the earth. It was originally thought that the men were dead, they hadn't survived the collapse, or that they would starve to death before they were found, if ever. 
After two weeks of drilling pilot holes, just holes to see if they could find a gap, and then if any, anyone would uh, respond to that, they, they drilled into the place where these men were staying. They said that for, for days they had heard the drills going right past the room that they were, they were um, staying in. And uh, finally a drill came into that. They began banging on that, which uh, sent indication that they were alive. There was a big, little, little bigger hole drilled. They sent cameras and supplies and foods down, food down. And all, three, all 33 men were alive and doing well. You remember this? So, so for the next two months, they had cameras literally down below the surface of the earth interacting with these men. It was, uh, at least today, the, the, the nightly updates on these men was the most televised event worldwide since the history, since the beginning of television. People were in, just entranced by this, what was going to happen to these men. And there's a good reason. Everyone knew the danger. Everyone could identify at some level with the fact that these men were facing a very possible death that was going to happen before all of the world's eyes. It was horrific to see and know the danger of these 33 men. I was captured up. I would race home every night from from a church to, to see the news and see what was going on, what was happening. I didn't want to see these men die. Finally, after 69 days, they were rescued. When you open the 10th chapter of Romans, that serves as a, a bit of a metaphor for what's happening here. But it's far more graphic and the consequences are far more eternal than just men trapped in a mine, as horrific as that was. Paul understood his friends, his neighbors, the Jews that he knew especially, as being in danger before God. They were trapped in their sins. They were trapped in their trespasses. They were in trouble before God, facing a certain destruction, eternal destruction. And, and it broke Paul's heart. Now, when you find yourself in Romans 10, you have to orient yourself with where you are. I don't want to be trite, but Romans 10 is after chapter 9 and before chapter 11. Now, I know you know that. You can count. But that's significant because this unit of chapter 9, 10, and 11 function together as one really aside that Paul has. For eight chapters, he's been explaining what justification is, that it's to the Jews and to the Greeks, that the gospel is for anyone who will believe. He's explained how those who are really saved need to be fighting sin and honoring God, not to earn God's favor, but because we've been given God's favor through Christ. And he's, after chapter eight, talked about sanctification and life in the spirit. And chapter 12 and following will be how to live out life in, in the church and in the world in a way that brings us joy and brings God uh, glory and pleasure, but before he gets there, he does something that is really, really super important theologically. And if you love your Bibles, and I know you do, and you read your Bibles, and I know you have, you'll, you'll see this problem. The problem is the credibility of God regarding Israel. What I mean by that is this. In the Old Testament, through the law, through the prophets, in the Psalms, God had promised to the nation of Israel that he would send a conquering king and a coming Messiah. He also promised them that he would give them certain land markers, uh, that he would give them land forever. And yet, from the very occupation of that land to the New Testament, you see things declining. 
They're going south spiritually. They're going south physically, uh, commercially, fiscally. The, the nation of Israel is just dying from the inside out. So that you get to the time of Jesus, certainly the time of Paul, where Judaism was really a, had, had devolved into this, this set of rules, this set of regulations. They had actually believed that salvation was primarily by surgery. Now, that sounds weird, but what they were, they were counting on is that if they were circumcised or they circumcised their, their male children, that God would save them, that they were in good with God. If they possessed the Torah, that God was giving them favor and that they were okay with God. Paul then takes great, goes to great lengths in the book of Romans to tell them just the opposite. Possession of God's truth doesn't mean that you've applied. Appreciation is an application. And in chapter 10, he climaxes what he's done in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is all about God's sovereignty. It is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible. I mean, you can go through and see how how strong it is about teaching God's sovereignty and salvation. There are two twins in verse 11. Before they had done good or bad, God chose one over the other. Verse 13, uh, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the one who runs, but it depends on God who has mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says, to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. And verse 18 says he hardens. That's Pharaoh whom he desires. In the middle of all this, there's a major theme that Paul is striking. He's saying not all Israel is Israel. What does he mean by that? Not everyone who is an ethnic Jew necessarily has a relationship with God. Said another way, God has no grandchildren. Just because your parents were Jewish doesn't mean that you worship in the, the regulated way of the Old Testament. Well, that had been passed on and passed on. So Paul says, not everyone who says they're in Israel really is truly Israel. And in verse 27, in chapter 9, he talks about this remnant that will be saved. It's the remnant theology that runs all the way through the Old and New Testament. Even through the church, not everyone in the church is truly converted. They went out from us because they were not of us. Just because you say you're a Jew doesn't make you any more saved than just saying you're a Christian means you're truly redeemed. Same principle works on both sides. Well, after this amazing chapter on God's sovereignty, and you almost hear the fingernails on the chalkboard like, ooh, Paul, that's awfully strong, comes chapter 10. In chapter 10, he highlights man's responsibility, not distinct from God's sovereignty, but in tandem with it. Not to compete with God's sovereignty, but to actually explain it. So let's just, I'm going to give you some markers here, about uh, four markers, just as we go through and review this chapter. These are big principles that you can learn as you look at the whole chapter in one, one shot. First is this, without the gospel, zeal for God is worthless. Looking back, we're going to look at this theologically also and practically both. Without the gospel, zeal for God is worthless. Look at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire 
and my prayer to God for them. And if you go back to chapter, the end of chapter 9, you know that them is, is Jews, Jewish friends. Jews in general. My prayer to God for them is for salvation, that they would be saved. Paul's heart is broken. Paul's heart is broken, I think, predominantly because of his own testimony. This is one who, remember Acts 8 and 9, he had such zeal against the church. He was a party of killing Christians. He stood by a Stephen with stone. He was putting sentences of death on women and even children and families because of their claim to know Jesus as Messiah. He was radically saved and radically converted. And now he prays for those who were in the same boat he was. You know, practically, if you, if I have experienced the life-changing grace of God by believing the gospel, then your heart's desire is for those you know and love to be saved. And you know what that desire is manifest most clearly? We pray for them. We pray. Look at what he says here. My prayer for them is for their salvation. Lest you think that Paul was some kind of Calvinazi, understand this is the same Paul who said just a few verses earlier, only God is in charge of salvation. He hardens some. He softens others. He'll have mercy on who will have mercy. He'll save who will save. He is absolutely sovereign. And then he starts right here in verse 1 and says, ah, I'm praying that God would save them. Why doesn't he pray, God, I hope they're elect. I hope they're predestined. He doesn't say that. First of all, he doesn't know that. And secondly, he understands the massive accent of God on the responsibility of man to respond to the gospel offer. And that leads him to pray for them. You know, no one who's ever prayed for someone's salvation is really an Arminian. What I mean by that is they believe that salvation is up to man and man alone. Why would you ask God to do anything? And if you ask God to save someone, aren't you saying, aren't you admitting, God can superintend his will overneath the will of someone else to make them believe? Well, who's sovereign in that equation? Obviously, God is. He goes on in verse 2, for I testify about them, these Jews that he wants to be saved so, so badly, Oh, this is so sad that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. He says there's such a thing as a zeal for God that's illegitimate with God. There's such a thing as a passion, that's the word zeal, a passion for God that's ill-founded, that doesn't mean anything to God. You can be passionate about God and be wrong, he says. Muslims who bow multiple times during the day and get out of a little carpet, have a zeal for God, but it's not, it's not legitimate. Buddhists who have kept the wax industry in business by lighting so many candles have not earned God's favor. Their passion for that doesn't impress God. Monks and nuns who have renounced this world and, and reclused into some private place have not made heaven say, wow, did you see them? You can have a zeal for God and be completely wrong. Said another way, sincerity is no substitute for truth. They had a zeal for God. 
But then he says, it wasn't in accordance to knowledge. Now, they were passionate about God, but it wasn't right. What does that mean? Well, it wasn't in accordance with knowledge. In order to understand what that knowledge is, you have to keep reading. Verse 3. For not knowing, see the connection here? It wasn't according to knowledge, and now not knowing, we find out what they did not know. Not knowing about God's righteousness. Wow, that's an important, important phrase you need to understand if you're going to understand and unlock the meaning of Romans. Not knowing about God's righteousness. Stop right there. What is God's righteousness? God's righteousness, it, it, there's several words for that. It's justification, it's um, uh, being right or being righteous. Or it means to be perfect. We said it all the way through our study in the book of Romans. Here's the, the most shocking news you could ever hear. If you want to go to heaven, you can, but you have to be perfect. Just let that marinate in your soul for a minute. You have to be perfect. That's the same as be righteous. Having no unrighteousness. Now, you've probably done the calculus in your mind and you've thought, well, hang on a second. First of all, that doesn't sound really hopeful. And second of all, who's qualified in that calculus? Even if you were to be perfect from here to the end of your life, what do you do with your past sins? Perfection, pure holiness, righteousness, being just and justified before God. That's what God requires to go to heaven. And nobody qualifies. Except for one. Jesus, God's son, came to, Matthew says, fulfill all righteousness. In every way that God could be obeyed, he obeyed. In every way that God could be pleased, he was pleased. In every way God could be and we use our word impressed. He was impressed only with Jesus because he lived that perfect life. And then Romans 3 through 5 explained to us this divine accounting math of imputation. There's two ledgers. There's, there, there's, there's Jesus' ledger, which is perfect and having never sinned. There's our ledger, which is having absolute sin and being unqualified to go to heaven. And it's just amazing again to even think about it. Paul says, in the gospel, when we believe, he takes his righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ, he gives his righteousness to the one who believes. He imputes it. He gives it. He puts it in their account. And then he takes our sin, and that goes on Jesus on the cross. And you ought to be screaming with every fiber of your soul, how can that be? And you're right. Can't be. Because all of us naturally have this system where we want to work ourselves into God's favor. That's what the next phrase says. For not knowing about God's righteousness in Christ and seeking to establish their own. There it is. Seeking to establish their own, to be righteous in and of themselves by their own effort. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Where was the righteousness of God manifest? In the gospel, in Jesus. They rejected it. But they sought to establish their own righteousness. All of us intuitively seek to establish our own righteousness. What we do is we say, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as him or her. I may not be as good as him or her, but since I'm not the worst, the lightning, if it's going to strike, is probably going to go over there and not over here. That's not how it works. We are all lightning rods of God's divine wrath, righteous and furious wrath. 
So, verse 4. For Jesus Christ is the purpose, the goal of the law for this perfection, this righteousness we need to who? People who are passionate? No. People who are serious? No. People who are Jewish? No. To everyone who believes. This is the same Paul who preached the sovereignty of God and salvation so strongly in chapter 9. Says it's open to anyone who will believe. How? By understanding and believing that Jesus is the perfect end goal conclusion to the Old Testament, to the law. He is the Messiah. That's the righteousness of which these people were unaware or rejected. I mean, you go back, I, I, the, the verse that just stands out so loudly, uh, Romans 3, 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's it. He's justified by faith in what Jesus did, not leaning on what he can do to contribute anything to impress God. Without the gospel, zeal for God is worthless. You can be all out and all out wrong. You say, well, what was the place of works? I'm glad you asked because he goes on. Number two, salvation is secured by faith in Jesus, not by works. Salvation is secured by faith in Jesus, not by works. I love verse five, how it starts. For Moses writes... If you were going to get the attention of a Jewish uh, 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 zealot, someone who's really serious about God, and you wanted to have credibility to what you're saying, who would you quote? Moses. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Reaching back to the book of Leviticus, you know what he's saying? If you really want works to be your standard, if you want your own righteousness to be the the ruler and the standard by which you are judged to go to heaven, have at it. Because if you're going to use that as your standard, you better live by it. You better be perfect. That's different than the righteousness based on faith. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Differently than the righteousness based on works. This is what it says. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. What is this saying? A lot of debate on it. I don't think it's that complicated. He's saying... If you are putting salvation on what you do versus what Christ does, let's do some comparison. Let's say that you were in charge. God has said Jesus is the one who came from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death in your place. Not because of his sin, but because of ours. If that's the plan and you want to be in charge, are you the one who did that? Did you get in the boardroom and invent that plan? Are you the one who said, God will become flesh and come down? We're going to bring him down from heaven to earth. And before you say, well, uh, he says, and did you raise Christ from the dead? 
Well, of course not. Absolutely not. No way. Salvation is not in your own concoction, verse 8 says. The word is near you. The message of the gospel, in other words, is near you. In your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That's distinctive from the word of righteous effort. The point is that you don't have to be in charge of the incarnation or the resurrection. It's already been accomplished and the message of faith is near if you are hearing the gospel. Then verses 9 and 10, we come to really sacred real estate in the Bible. Really, really important verses. What are we preaching? Verse 8. The word of faith, which we are preaching. Faith means to believe. What should we believe? That, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, I know your text probably says, as Lord, a better translation is, is Lord, is your Lord. If you confess with your mouth, you make public testimony to the fact that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How simple is that? How, how simple is that? That verse will get you into heaven if you understand it. Some important parts there. Jesus is not just a nice guy, not just a willing sacrifice. He says he's Lord. That means he calls the shots. He's the master. Also, we believe that God raised him from the dead. That the resurrection was not the concoction of Caiaphas or the Romans. It was history, reality, truth. He goes on in verse 10 to explain this. With the heart, a person believes. That's the heart is the mission control central of who you are. It's the, 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 where you think. But with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Do you see that? Believing results in righteousness, not your own system, as verses 2 and 3 we're talking about. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever, I love all these, anyone, whoever, everyone, verses, or words rather. For the scripture says, this is Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame or disappointed. These are a group of Jews who thought, we're going to be shamed and disappointed, put out of the synagogue perhaps, which they were, if we believe in the Messiah and he says, you'll be put to shame. And you won't be disappointed. It's the same Hebrew concept. You will be satisfied and fulfilled if you believe the gospel. Now, just when you think this is a very Jewish chapter comes verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. In other words, there's only one way of salvation. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. No distinction. We were talking uh, on Tuesday morning, I was talking with a group of men, and uh, uh, Bill, you were talking about uh, Acts 15, where the apostles actually come back to the Gentiles and say, look, we get saved like they do. The point is, Jews and Gentiles doesn't matter anymore. 
It's the centrality of the person of Christ and the reality of his death and resurrection. That's what saves people. No distinction. He's the Lord of all. 92 times he's called Lord in the book of Acts. Twice he's called Savior. And look at that last phrase. It reminds me of Ephesians 1. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. This was not the health and wealth uh, gospel where you get a bunch of stuff if you believe. The riches are spiritual riches. Divine inheritance. Hope beyond the grave. Abounding for all who call on him. And then verse 13. For, here's one of our workhorse words again. For whoever, whoever. He doesn't say elect. He doesn't say predestined. Are they elect and are they predestined? Read Romans 9. Yes, they are. But from our perspective, whoever, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That will be saved is connected to verse 9. You will be saved. Here they will be saved if they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming from the same writer of chapter 11 comes this whoever, whoever will believe. Wow. Salvation is secured by faith in Jesus. It's not secured by by doing better, trying harder, or being good-er. It's by Christ. Now that is such a radical reality that if you believe that, it's not something you can keep to yourself. So verses 14 and 15, we come to this third point in our review. The mission of the church is to spread the gospel. The mission of the church is to spread the gospel. He works backwards, as we we looked at a few weeks ago, from, from the calling to how you get to know this message in the first place. In verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, verse 14, will they call on him whom they have not believed? You have to believe in him in order to call on him to save you. You have to believe who he is and what he's done. But then he goes on. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? You have to explain to someone who he is and what he's done in order for them to believe so that they will call on the name of the Lord. And how will they hear without your, your text probably says a preacher. Don't make too much of that word preacher. It means proclaimer, an announcer. Yes, it applies to, to those who stand in the pulpit. Yes, it certainly applies to missionaries. But you also are a proclaimer and a preacher of the good news. How will anyone hear unless somebody tells them? And how will they preach? How will they proclaim unless they are sent? Unless some church somewhere figures out that we gather to be encouraged and we scatter to tell people about the gospel. And then he says, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. This is Isaiah 52, verse 7. I'm not talking about literal feet, whether or not they're dirty or clean or whether they have a fungus or toe jam. He's talking about the beauty of what they do to deliver the person who's telling the gospel. That's our mission, folks. We are to use our ability to be ambulatory, to move, to to move around, to use an internet, a phone, anything for the mission of the church. 
The mission of telling people the gospel belongs to the church. And, and can I just take a little aside here and, and share, just bleed on you for a minute. It doesn't belong to Hollywood. The mission of the church, the mission of the giving the gospel to the church is not Hollywood's. Um, I don't go see many movies. It's not because I'm some legalist. I just don't like movies. I, get, I, I go to sleep. And they have really fattening popcorn that I eat a lot of. I just don't like movies very much. Um, but I read a review about this movie, Risen, that said, this was the headline, Finally, Hollywood Gets the Bible Right. I wanted to see that. And so yesterday, I took one of my sons and my wife, and I paid way too much money and went to watch this movie. Hollywood didn't get it right. Not even close. And I'm not here to beat up this movie. If you saw it and you like it, praise God, just add some things to it. But we shouldn't expect Hollywood to get it right. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, they botched the casting. They fell subject to Gregory, the Pope Gregory, the wicked Pope, who said that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and that the whole plot is built around her being a prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute at all. New Testament never claims that. Also, there were the wrong number of guards at the tomb. That's pretty significant in Luke's account. Also, the location and details of the ascension were wrong. Were wrong. The ascension happened in the movie in Galilee. The ascension happens in Jerusalem, probably on the Mount of Olives. It also gives an interesting nod to the Catholic notion of the Shroud of Turin. So I, I just, I probably knew too much to watch this movie because I just kept going, the whole time through. I appreciate the fact, though, that this movie actually affirms, in a, in, a, in, a, in a dramatic sense, the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. I am so grateful to God that they did get that part right. But they also have a Roman centurion at the place where Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. It, there's a lot of wrong stuff that, that, that I think could cloud your judgment. As if this isn't, the Bible is, is this not clear enough? Is this okay? You do know that God left us a book, not a video, don't you? Now, I'm not telling you all this to beat up on this movie. I'm telling you all this to say, what did you expect? I'm telling myself, what did I expect? The mission of a church is to share the gospel. That is not to be given to Hollywood. That's our responsibility. That's our mission, not them. I don't care if they get it right or not. It doesn't. I don't have expectation they're going to get it right. And they got a few things right and a lot more wrong, by the way. Same was with the passion of the Christ. If you brought an alien and sat them down in the movie, in, into this movie, Risen, or The Passion of the Christ, and they watched this film, and at the end, you say, what does that mean? They'd say, I don't know. They'd probably say, why are they so mean to that guy? We understand that the gospel is three parts. Facts, which these movies talked about pretty well. Theology or meaning about those facts and a response to those facts. To have any one of those three without the other two is a problem. And so I, I just want to bleed on you. The mission of the church is to take the gospel. Don't relegate that to Hollywood or somebody else. 
And you're not a wicked, no good sinner if you go see the movie, okay? Just want to say that. Number four, man is responsible to believe and respond to the gospel. This is where the whole thing climaxes that builds off of chapter nine. Man is responsible to believe and respond to the gospel. However, they did not all heed the good news. Not all Israel was Israel, in other words. Lord who has believed, quotes Isaiah 53 too. Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report or our message. Not everyone did. So faith comes from a hearing, hearing by a word, a specific message, an explanation of the gospel about Christ. You have to tell people. I know some people say you may be uh, the only Bible anyone ever reads. Well, if that's the case, you better say the gospel, not just live it. You have to speak the truth about Jesus. Verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? He's speaking tongue-in-cheek because he says, indeed they have. He goes to Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. He's quoting David colloquially. David wasn't talking about the gospel. Paul uses his principle to speak of the gospel. But I say, verse 19, and surely Israel did not know. Did they? First, Moses says, I will make you a jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding, I will anger you. This is Deuteronomy 32, 21. This is exactly what's happened. Many religious Jews would look at Christians and think we have co-opted their faith. Why are we making our Messiah Jewish? Why, do, why don't can we start our own thing? They're jealous of their, their um, franchising of God. Verse 20. Then Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. So Isaiah 65, 1, verse 2 will be in the next verse. All he's saying is, the Jews were supposed to be seeking me and they didn't find me. The Gentiles weren't even supposed to be seeking me and they did find me through the gospel. But as for Israel, he says, now Isaiah 65, verse 2, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. A couple things jump out in that verse. Yes, Israel is disobedient and obstinate, but so are you and I. We, we can't just relegate this to, to the nation of Israel. That's a description of you and me. But also look at the disposition of God. All Day long, I have, I continue to stretch out my hands. God doesn't say, you had your chance, I'm walking away. He continues to stretch out his hand today. The, as Jonathan Edwards says, the door of mercy is swung wide open in this moment for anyone who would believe. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you have a prayerful heart for your unbelieving friends like Paul did? You may believe and you should believe in the sovereignty of God's salvation, but do you have a prayerful, bleeding, burdened heart for those you know who aren't redeemed? Do you pray for them? Have you paid attention to your own intuitive system of pleasing God? All of us have what verse 2 says. We have this way, this zeal for God without knowledge, looking at our own system of righteousness Ignoring the gospel truth. Are you going to do all you can to go, sin, and pray for gospel workers? Are we a mission-minded church? 
that sends? Are we a missions faithful church that goes? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation and the responsibility of man to believe at the same time? And you're okay with that? And do you remember that God has outstretched hands, especially to unbelieving Jews who are obstinate and disobedient? And we should be ready to tell them of the Messiah. My wife, Kim, just read a book entitled Evidence Not Seen by Darlene Rose. And after I preached on the, the beautiful feet of those who bring good news a few weeks ago, um, she read to me a part of the book and I asked her, would you please write that down? I want to share that with the, with the body of Mission Road. So she typed it out. It was, it was a moving moment about the... Burden, responsibility, and precious privilege of taking the gospel. Russell Diebler, American missionary to New Guinea in 1938, contracted a severe case of jungle rot infection on his feet during a trek through the mountains of New Guinea with the purpose of giving the gospel to unreached tribes. One day, after watching Russell's wife Darlene care for him, Fellow missionary Robert Jaffrey wrote these words, quote, This morning I looked at the bleeding feet of a missionary. I saw his wife tending them. I saw the blood and the pus running from them and thought to myself, what a nauseating sight this is. But as I walked from the room, the Lord kept saying to me, Oh, but to me... They are beautiful feet. Then I remembered how, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Good tidings to men and women like those in New Guinea who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Someday it will be over. Someday the tired, bleeding feet of the missionaries will, for the last time, cross the broken bottle limestone mountains. Someday, for the last time, they will go down to one of those newly discovered valleys. Someday, for the last time, they will speak the message of redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Someday, that last one will return, it will turn to Jesus. Then, the clouds will part, and our Savior will be there. We should be involved in that overseas we should be involved with that this afternoon how do your feet look are they beautiful to God are they bruised and bleeding injured because of the efforts that we have with the possession God's given us of the gospel to take the people who need it can you imagine in August of 2010 dropping that camera in and seeing those miners, those 33 men, seeing them alive, seeing their hope, seeing their possible rescue, and then pulling the camera up and saying, that's for somebody else, and just walking away and closing up the mine, letting them die? 
It's ridiculous. It's a silly illustration, isn't it? You will meet people in the next 24 hours who are trapped in a far more dangerous mind called sin. And you know how they can be rescued. 